To mark the unveiling of our New Look website, we're offering podcast listeners the chance to claim a three-month digital subscription to The Spectator absolutely free, including the magazine delivered via the app, full online access and Spectator newsletters and podcasts. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash free. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. Are the churches rising to the challenge of the coronavirus? And if not, why not? I'm joined once again by Dr Gavin Ashenden, a former chaplain to the Queen and one of Britain's most insightful Christian commentators. One of the extraordinary things about this pandemic is that it's the first time in the West that people have been confronted with such a terrifying situation and not turn to Christianity as a resource in significant numbers. And another thing that perhaps needs saying is that it's not clear that the leadership of the churches is truly rising to this challenge. Many Christians and other religious believers are doing wonderful things to help their neighbours. But if you look at the official pronouncements of the bishops, too often you're confronted by what reads like the standard health and safety advice, with just a little light dusting of spirituality. For example, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, put out a statement which did contain some inspiring reflections, but began with the advice about washing your hands that we hear a hundred times a day and doesn't particularly gain in authority from being repeated by the leader of the Church of England. Now, bishops have taken the difficult decision to end public worship, and I don't criticise them for that. It's an inevitable precaution, and it must be said that many clergy are vigorously promoting online worship in this time of trial. But there is a sense that there's something missing, and that's the sort of truly remarkable leadership that might not just galvanise the churches, but push Christianity back into the public square, where in the past it's always been, sometimes a great risk to itself, when epidemics sweep the land. Gavin, do you think that's fair? One of the more pungent criticisms in the press was that the Archbishop of Canterbury was giving a quality of leadership that was at at best insipid. And I think that's what you've summed up as you've described what he's said. Wash your hands and be nice. But washing your hands and be nice is not really the driving force behind religion or Christianity. What the churches are supposed to be good at dealing with as two things that have been ruled out of our social discourse and our our secular experience and their death and the supernatural and if the churches at any point give up being experts on death and the supernatural they really lose their raison d'etre which is why I think wash your hands and be nice doesn't work as a replacement. Boris Johnson of course was actually more authentic when he stood up and said you're going to lose some loved ones and some people see this as a political version of the nudge theory to get people to change their behaviour. But it had the great virtue, too, of of being true and perhaps emerging from his reading of Stoicism. As a society, we're marked by pleasure-seeking and the avoidance of death. That's what secularism has become. I don't entirely blame the church. I think it's very hard for Justin Welby because 
again, the difficulty of being a national church, as we've discussed before, is that you you either condone and try and offer some kind of spirituality associated with secular culture, or else you challenge it. But secular culture has become so far removed from dealing with death and the supernatural that I don't think his position, the Church of England's position of being a spiritual therapeutic arm to secularism works remotely. And it's taken the coronavirus to show us that. It's actually quite difficult for the churches to strike the right balance here because if they were seen to be exploiting the crisis, to be putting the fear of God into people already frightened and thereby winning converts, then that would understandably go down extremely badly with the general public. That's a very interesting angle, and and you're absolutely right. They are certainly in danger of being accused of exploiting it. But in a sense, that's only a normal criticism from people who don't either understand the church or its quest or welcome it. So I think one has to shrug that off. So long as the motivation of the church is clean and it doesn't stoop to manipulation, blackmail, terrorising, then that accusation doesn't really hold. But the the problem the church has got is that 150 years ago, it was really very good at death. The Victorians in particular developed a very developed social and religious etiquette about dealing with mourning. The colour band you wore and where you wore it and how long you wore it for told everyone what you were suffering from and allowed a proper therapeutic conversation about the experience of death and bereavement. In the last 150 years, that's completely gone. It's been washed right out of social consciousness. And what we have now instead is the avoidance of death at any cost, filling space instead with euphemisms, um, and pleasure-seeking. And and that works for a while (laughs) until the human condition bites. Um, And so the human condition has bit with this dreadful pandemic. And suddenly, we all of us have to face the fact that we're going to die. And then, of course, the associated philosophical conundrum, which was, you know, for all of time and history, bar the last moment, we didn't exist, and suddenly we've existed for a bit, and very shortly, (laughs) more shortly than we wish, we will stop existing biologically again. So what do we make of that? Well, it's not exploiting to offer an interpretative narrative, an interpretative experience. It's not exploiting to say we have evidence of life after death and resurrection. It's actually enormously uh, healing and, and to, to use a technical phrase, redemptive. It starts infusing our human experience with a validity that otherwise avoiding death and pleasure-seeking doesn't really have, never did have. Part of the problem of the way we live in the West is it it doesn't work very well for people. People are not happy. We have levels of mental distress amongst our children that ought to give us a signal that our chasing of existential and political utopianism doesn't work. So I think this I think in a way the coronavirus ought to be seen as an opportunity. I don't mean an exploitative opportunity. I mean an opportunity to be able to talk truthfully about the human condition which the churches ought to take with both hands and some sensitivity. It would be wrong to say that no one in the churches is responding creatively and compassionately to this crisis because they certainly are. I mean, I personally found myself rather unexpectedly moved by the sight of the Pope walking through the streets of Rome, almost alone, eerily deserted streets to to pray in public. But by and large, I have the feeling that bishops are coming across, just like any other public officials, repeating bleedingly obvious health advice and saying nothing striking or memorable to Christians or people who are receptive to Christianity about how, paradoxically, they might derive 
some spiritual benefit from this awful crisis by helping other people. Yes, they do make suggestions, but not in a memorable way. Yet again, it leads me to think that over the past few decades, the wrong people have been promoted in the churches. People who, above all, lack imagination. I think I almost wish it was lack of imagination, but I fear it's something more more serious than that. I, I have a sort of an image of Stockholm syndrome taking place, and the the hostage taker is is secularism. I think if one looks back over the last hundred years, the assault of secularism on the church has been swift and very brutal. If you put together some of the names that have stripped the Christian experience of its capacity for being comfortable and dealing with the supernatural, one gets a sense of how, how ruthless it's been. I mean, Dorkheim uh, reinterpreted the, the ecstasy that, that comes from worship and, and, and used group dynamics to explain everything. Marx insisted that the only poor that should be paid attention to were the economic poor rather than the, the navim, the spiritual poor in the Hebrew context, and, and set down the, the challenge of a utopianism built on a completely false reading of human nature. Darwin exposed the fact that the church couldn't tell the difference between, between science and archetypal myth, and Feuerbach turned the telescope the wrong way around and, and suggested everything was in fact a projection onto a cosmic canvas because of our own need for some kind of father figure to take care of us and Freud did this terrible double whammy of making us believe that our most powerful needs were sexual and that we would come to great harm if we didn't express them and then then added perhaps the most potent thing in the mix was this comp this linkage between religious experience and mental illness what this meant was that it became incredibly difficult for the church to talk with authority and ease about spiritual and religious experience of which there has been an enormous amount it's the spiritual experience of the mystics of the saints of the church down the ages very carefully documented and you know the good stuff bringing great social fruit and, and the bad stuff being exposed for neurosis it's that that has produced the fuel of the Christian experience. Now, interestingly enough, in the 20th century, there was a, a marine biologist called Sir Alistair Hardy who wonderfully held the same professorial chair as Richard Dawkins at Oxford. And he, as, a, as an evolutionary biologist, had a great interest in spiritual experience and actually created something called the Religious Experience Research Unit, which showed that a lot of people had it. But the problem with the church was that it, it had become so knocked off its foundations by the intellectual and political and psychological forces of secularism that it simply in the West lost all sense of self-confidence. And then instead of being at ease with supernaturalism and developing the facility for distinguishing between authentic supernaturalism and, and the fake stuff, just gave up the ghost. And so in, in a sense, I think we're at a very important crossroads uh, the church can no longer afford not to deal with death and the supernatural, the metaphysical, and have any public currency or cogency, which is why it's attracted the kind of opprobrium that you quite rightly, I think, are expressing about the advice to wash your hands and be nice. Having said that, the Victorian church was by and large addressing a community of believers. That isn't the situation today. Most people in the West don't practice any religion even if they have some formal identification with it. And therefore, church leaders can no longer take for granted that people have any sort of coherent religious beliefs to start with. And therefore, it raises the question of how do they talk to people 
with whom, in terms of fundamental beliefs about the cosmos, they have so little in common. Well, you're quite right. It, it is very difficult now. It was easier in the days when I was uh, an Anglican vicar, and what I discovered was that people responded, uh, they, they opened up after they'd had three crises. And the three crises were usually involved a birth in the family, a death in the family, and some other difficulty. Uh, and the great thing about being an Anglican vicar 30 years ago was that you often got involved with the birth, uh, with a request of christening, and you were often involved at the death as the nation turned to the Church of England for its rites of passage. And you didn't have to wait very long for some ghastly crisis, whether it was an aunt getting cancer or a road accident. And I found that after three events where you'd been involved, people were then willing to come to the church or to the vicarage and sit down and, and talk about the human condition and how jolly difficult it was and, and, and saying, well, you seem to have confidence and an understanding and a narrative, and I rather like the effect it has can I explore it with you? Now, it's more difficult now because secularization has accelerated enormously. But it is still the fact that, that the very experience of birth and death and intervening tragedies produce an unbearable provocation in the human condition. And that's why the church should, should avoid the fear that you began, began with, which is you mustn't be seen to be exploiting this, and speak directly to the human condition and say, look, it's very difficult being a human being. But, but here in the Christian narrative is the least problematic key to understanding it. You can face death with confidence and, and even with joy because it's both inevitable and we have a glimpse through to the other side. My my concern, I think, with the present leadership of the church is that they're so at ill at ease with the supernatural and with the with the power of the Christian experience that they're frightened off and behave as, as if they were a religious arm of the secular experience. And that's really hard to forgive, I think, given what our forefathers have struggled with in the past. Well, one of the risks that our distant Christian forefathers took was actually going about among the sick during the plague. For example, there was a terrible plague in the later years of the Roman Empire, and it was the fearlessness of Christian missionaries moving around the sick and catching the disease in greater numbers than anybody else that so impressed the Roman public about these Christians. Now, I'm not suggesting that doing exactly the same thing is the right response today. There's a very real danger of spreading the disease by moving among the sick regardless. The dilemma was very neatly summed up by the Reverend Marcus Walker, who's the very impressive rector of St Bartholomew the Great in London, one of the places where high Anglicanism is truly flourishing. And he tweeted, This is one of the greatest challenges of being a priest right now. Every instinct tells you to do the thing that will actively harm the very people you yearn to help. So I entirely understand why liturgies have been cancelled, and we're very fortunate that we have the resources of the internet in order to allow pastors to keep a sense of community with worshippers. But you talk about having been an Anglican vicar, Gavin, and people seeking you out. And to an extent, I, I think people still seek out the Church of England today. But if they were to look for their local vicar, they might have some difficulty discovering who it was. They just wouldn't know automatically, and they'd probably find out that they didn't have a local vicar, but they were part of some sort of pastoral team because there's a shortage of clergy. I do think one thing that parishes should be doing and aren't necessarily is keeping their church buildings open, even if they can't have public liturgies, so that the church becomes a place of spiritual sanctuary, if you like. You can go there on your own, you can light a candle, you can do whatever you want in order to find peace. 
So I was horrified, for example, when the decision was taken to close all the churches in Rome for the first time, I think, since the end of the Roman Empire. And it seems to me that this element of risk-taking, that once so distinguished Christians from everyone else, has virtually disappeared. I think that's true. You, you, you raised three things, cowardice, self-sacrifice and, and the internet. Um, I'm very pleased to say that I think that the authorities in Rome have reversed their decision, that thank goodness. It would have been very hard to have lived with that level of public cowardice because, as you quite rightly say, uh, keeping churches open is not by itself necessarily a public health hazard if you adapt the rest of your behaviour accordingly. The self-sacrificing is very interesting. In, in the past, there have been a number of, of plagues, and I suppose the one that most people are familiar with is the Black Death, of course. And then what we found is that in Europe, there was a mortality rate of about 30%. And amongst the clergy, it went up to 45%. And the reason for that was that the clergy didn't desert their people. They were at bedsides and at the death, giving the last rites and the sacraments. They did care for them practically and helpfully, and they died in greater numbers, but so they should. One of the things that Jesus makes very clear is that don't fear those who kill the body, but fear him instead who can cast the soul into hell. One day you're going to come to judgment and you're going to lose your body anyway. Make sure you do it in a way that's that allows you to come to judgment with some degree of trust and confidence. So it should be that way. And both there and, of course, in times of persecutions, one of the things that really affected people for good was seeing how lightly Christians carried their fear of mortality because they believed Christ had risen from the dead. They believed in the communion of saints. And then they, they were content to make the inevitable journey with confidence. The problem today is that people have lost that confidence. Well, the third thing, I think, is the Internet. It's certainly true that churches are closing, but although the Internet has become this appalling purveyor of, of pornography, nonetheless, it's also become an enormous resource for people. I get emails, I would say daily, really, from people who have found things that I've said on the Internet or or listen to, to my, my homilies and say, something has struck a chord and my, my spiritual life has opened up, my, my soul has begun to breathe, my intellect has become informed. And in my case, in small numbers, but in other cases, more gifted people, they're having a huge impact on the internet. And one of the things we've seen is, is priests who actually believe and radiate a certain joy and confidence and understanding of the faith saying, join me for the celebration of Mass or for my homilies on the internet. You can be part of this and we'll pray for you. Now, that, that level of confidence and, and using the internet instead of geographical space because they have to is a way in which I think the church, again, so far from exploiting the situation, is offering a redemptive narrative that both makes sense of it and gives people the resources to, to, to go through it, to understand it, to rise above it and, and to get beyond it. There's a great deal of very impressive stuff out there. Particularly impressive, interestingly, in China, which of course is where the outbreak began. Not just Christian churches, but other religions, Taoists, Muslims, Buddhists, have been overwhelmingly enthusiastic in raising money and providing material aid to people affected by the virus, to the extent where the Chinese government actually felt threatened by how much good work they were doing. Good work done in the face of their own anxieties, created by the vicious persecution of the Chinese government and its process of sinicization. It's so fascinating it should have come from China, because as, as we've been discussing the progress of Christianity in, in the third millennium in, in, in a Western culture, we notice that in Europe it's dying, 
partly about of the lack of confidence of its practitioners. In Africa, it's holding a pretty well steady. And in Russia and China, the places of the, of the greatest persecution in the 20th century, it's growing at an extraordinary rate. And so one of the things we discover, we know about Chinese Christianity, is that the Christians there have been willing to pay a very high price indeed in order not to give up their sense of the reality of their experience of the risen Christ in particular. What you said about the other world religions stepping up to the mark is, is absolutely true. There is a sophistication into the world religions that have lasted that, that secularism cannot undermine. But you do need, you do need to believe in your, in your belief system. I know it sounds obvious, but that's the problem with Christianity in the West. It doesn't. But in China, they do. And the level, the, the caliber of Christianity in China, both in terms of belief and kindness, generosity, self-sacrifice, goodness, uh, imagination, is extraordinary. And so isn't it interesting that not only do we have one of the most repressive regime in the world, the Chinese government, but balancing it, we have this enormous resurgence of the experience of the risen Christ, captivating people who've been brainwashed into into secular communism and at the same time it's the place where this virus began i'm not saying look look who started i'm just saying it that is where it began and so what a strange triangulation of these three events but i i think we can try and make sense of it again without being seen to exploit it but to do that christians need the right leaders which in the case of churches in the episcopal tradition catholics anglicans orthodox lutherans means bishops and, you know, talking of bishops, it's Vatican bishops who've just sold Chinese Christians down the river with the appalling Vatican-Beijing deal. Overwhelmingly, I feel it's local clergy, and that includes evangelical pastors, who are showing the dynamism and the initiative, while their lordships, as we call them in Britain, sound more like health and safety officers. I mean, perhaps they've missed their true vocation. Or, to put it another way, as I'm always saying, for decades we've been promoting the wrong people. It's a bit like the generals in the First World War. Our, our generals are not coming up to the mark. It'd be interesting to consider whether the kind of bishops and leaders that we have are a, a symptom or a cause. I, I suspect they're a symptom, really. I mean, I think probably the powers that be, whoever they are, if one can talk like that, made a decision in the appointment of, of religious generals that they should be people who didn't disturb too much, lest the price of disturbing secular society prove too great. And that was a great miscalculation. It miscalculated the aridity and the sterility of our hedonistic activism. And what we require is people who do disturb and who are willing to confront the terrible diminution of the way in which secular existential philosophy works. So I, I, I don't know if we can necessarily blame the bishops. They were, they were appointed because those were the kind of people that those running the system thought ought to be in charge. But we may find a number of good things come out of the coronavirus, despite the fact that it kills people, and that's horrible. And one of the good things is a, a greater sense of clarity of what the issues are that face human beings, both in the West and in the East. We are being invited once again to deal with two very important elements in the human condition, mortality and the possibility of the supernatural. And, and this could actually be a, a turning point. I think someone has written in the papers today that, uh, that this is the first time for a long time that our society has been forced to face its mortality. The AIDS crisis did it a little, and, and clearly wars do it all the time for those caught in war zones. 
but in in the in complacent Western culture, this has come as a very serious shock. Uh, and if the right voices can be heard from the depths of authentic religious tradition, this may be a, a turning point where people's hierarchy of values get challenged and changed in a way that does society some good because the way we're, <laughs> the way we're doing society at the moment doesn't lead to the flourishing of, of the human condition. One of the things I've noticed on Twitter, where I spend far too much of my time, is Catholics, in my case, with whom I've clashed quite bitterly in the past, as I'm afraid I tend to, offering, for example, to do the shopping for people who are particularly vulnerable to the coronavirus. And that made a real impression on me. It made me feel differently about them. It made me question my own attitudes towards them. It reminded me of the way members of the Society of St Vincent de Paul, whom I didn't know from Adam, showed up at my mother's hospital bed and made us all feel instantly better. And I'm thinking that these little acts of kindness have an almost transcendent quality that could make society in general think differently about religious believers, not just Christians, but Muslims or any faith community, as we call them these days. Well, what you described is how we as human beings are are trying to deal with good and evil. You're absolutely right to say that the deep at the centre of the human person is this great goodness, longing to get out and to exchange love in its various kinds. We are made in the image of God. That's how we are. At the same time, we're very badly flawed. So you have, um, on the one hand, people on Twitter saying, let me do your shopping, which is fantastic. And, and, and perhaps credit the Archbishop of Canterbury. He's trying to blow that ember into a greater flame. Bless him. Uh, at the same time, you have Australian housewives beating themselves up over toilet paper in supermarkets. And so this is the human condition. And, and once again, the problem for us is that each of us has both inside. We are those Australian housewives, we are those kind people on Twitter, and we're faced with our own death. And once, once again, the, the problem I think has been not that there are good people trying to be good or perverted or distorted people giving in to distortion, but that what we don't have in our society is access to a, a community and a narrative that shows us how we can combine, how, how goodness can be an antidote to evil, how life can be a preparation for death and what follows. So one of the impressive things that's coming at the moment is that, as you quite rightly say, some of the better voices are breaking the surface and being heard. And I think there's an enormous hunger in the West for authentic religion, particularly authentic Christianity. And once again, I think it's one of the things we'll find is that out of crisis and out of harm and out of evil, good can be rebirthed. That's actually the pattern of the universe. That's the pattern of our faith as we've seen it. It will happen again in this crisis. Well, I've never felt that people are less kind than they used to be or more selfish intrinsically. I think the problem is that so much human goodwill is channeled these days into fashionable causes, into virtue signalling, if you like. And what's happened with this virus is that all that posturing, and it's not all posturing, but a lot of it is, in which a great many church leaders have become bound up, has been thrown into the background. And perhaps now there is an opportunity for kindness to express itself in a more authentic way. Well, I think what we've just done is we've done stages one and two of, of the theological exploration. So stage one is to say, oh, look, the human beings have good and evil threaded within them. Stage two is 
But the trouble is that evil quashes the good so easily. I mean, I'm quite a nice person until someone tells me they hate me or, or takes my parking space <laughs> or offends me. And then I find a level of, of anger and rage and revenge coming up inside me, which turns out temporarily at any rate to be at least as strong as any goodness inside me. And so, so then the question comes, what is the antidote that allows good to triumph over evil? And this is a very profound question. I mean, uh, if we look back over human history, it's almost the question. So it's not enough to say, yes, you know, there's good and bad, and maybe people are nicer or, or less nice. What I think we need is the resources which allows us to find an antidote to the evil we carry within us, a, a cure for the virus of selfishness and pride. And once again, that's that doesn't come naturally. I mean, there are very few people who, well, I don't know of any people ever, who, who, who are naturally nicer than they are distorted. The spiritual struggle is a cosmic one. It's a supernatural one. It's more than just psychological. And once again, the whole virtue of Christianity is that it offers an antidote to evil. And if it doesn't do that and can't do that, then then it becomes a form of wishful thinking and, and uh, a little book of spirituality. We need a way of life, an experience that allows goodness to tame evil in us and to carry us through the fear of our mortality, which otherwise would crush us. Gavin Ashenden, thank you very much. <laughs>